This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. So, text message from me to Scott Stevens, my co-host. My name is Waleed Ali. Scott Stevens, my co-host. This is the Minefield. Text message. To Scott. So, what are we? Um, sorry, if the Queen dies, should we do a show on that? Scott's text message. Lord, we'd probably have to. My text message. So, what do we say? Thus begins the minefield. Welcome to it. Um, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I was going to say I know what you're thinking. The truth is I don't because I, there are varied views on this. Um, but what we're going to try to do today on the minefield is, I think, do a minefield thing, which is try to not be part of wall-to-wall coverage of it mm. so much as try to have a conversation that finds a different sort of a vantage point um, that might unearth something that the wall-to-wall coverage doesn't. Given there's wall-to-wall coverage, that's quite a task, <laughs> but we will do our very best. Scott, are you optimistic that we can succeed? Uh, I am. Can I tell you what I'm really grateful for? So what, you sent that late last Thursday night. What was so interesting is that we had recorded before Queen Elizabeth's death, a show on nostalgia, its dangers, and whether it can point to anything important or a sense that something is being lost within our common life. Uh, So we recorded that before her death. It went to air last week. It was repeated on Sunday after her death. And I think one of the things that's been quite touching to me is the number of people who've gotten contact with us, fully aware that we recorded it before, and yet found that that particular discussion of nostalgia really resonated. It kind of helped understand something of the feelings that were being had mm-hmm. and something that was trying to be articulated but didn't quite come to the surface. I think one of the things that stri- that's really struck me over the past week is that it seems like for all the coverage, and in many respects, this was a made-for-media event. It was historical And so all sorts of media outlets have been preparing for it with their retrospectives, their video packages, their timelines, their suite of black and white photos, their quirky little facts that maybe you didn't know about Her Majesty, the what happens next to currency, to debates surrounding the Republic, the more touching kind of human interest moments. All of these things have constituted part of our response to this. And then there's been the outpouring of emotion uh, and various forms of emotion, I should say, that have really punctuated social media coverage. I think one of the things that's been interesting to me, though, Waleed, is for all the coverage, there's also a kind of inarticulacy about what the Queen represented beyond simply the office, so there's, there's a degree to which she... So you mean her as a person? Yes, but in a way that her person is inseparable from the office and the way we think of the office is inseparable to her. In other words, it wasn't the monarchy as an institution, but it was Elizabeth as an institution and what that institution means or doesn't mean. So there's, there's been a kind of inarticulacy surrounding that, which I found really interesting. But then there's another form of inarticulacy. Silence is articulate in its own way. Moments of silence to honor the passing of someone significant. But then that silence can also be an imposition on the desire of others to feel something in their own way. And this was something that happened, for instance, during the AFLW matches, during the Indigenous round. And it was almost as if We know how we're feeling, but we don't know how to put it into words. When we do put it into words, that form of words can come to be an imposition upon others who want their own form of words. Even the obligation to feel a particular way is being imposed and squeezes out other ways of trying to feel what this particular moment means. In other words, for all of the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of words that have been spoken or written... It just strikes me that there's a big gap in the middle that maybe doesn't quite get to why is it that this has registered, that this has meant so much in different ways to many people. And so I'm hoping that I guess one of the things that we do in the wake of our nostalgia discussion is that we try to maybe talk a little something about that gap in the middle. Yeah, I see what you mean about the inarticulacy. And I think it's maybe that 
the monarchy itself, or th- even just things like monarchies, what they offer to their societies is something inarticulate. Mm, that's true. Like it, well said. It's something that doesn't submit itself to rational calculation, really. Or even of usefulness. Sorry. Except yeah. that at moments like this, it becomes clear that they're deeply useful, yeah. at least to a lot of people. Yeah. It's just hard to express exactly what that usefulness is. And I suppose this, to that extent, that it, that illustrates the sort of the conservative founding principle of the importance of tradition as something that embodies the collective wisdom of generations, even if you can't put your finger on exactly what that wisdom is. Mm. Mm. And that therefore you should be very reluctant to dismantle traditions because you often don't know or don't understand what you're dismantling. And what you erect in its place may miss some of those wisdoms. Mm. So I think that's kind of being played out here. But at the same time as you talk about an inarticulacy, I think there's been a very clear articulation in a lot of cases, um, especially by those who almost resent this period of mourning and this this huge, I was going to say spectacle. It's not just the spectacle. It's the dominance of this as a, a story in the public sphere. And you see this particularly from people who want the focus to be on things like the British Empire, colonisation and so on, you couldn't accuse them of being inarticulate. Mm. And for those who enjoy the celebration, or enjoy is not the right word, is it? But who who seem fully invested in the mourning of it, that's M-O-U-R-N, I think they're articulating something as well. One of the most interesting aspects to me was how quickly the theme of constancy came up. Yeah, that's true. Because I... I will admit, even though I'm part of a media organisation that had been getting its ducks in a row for probably a year, maybe even longer, I will admit I I wasn't really ready for the death of the Queen as something I would have a prefabricated response to. It just didn't... It still kind of caught me by surprise or on on the hop a little bit. And so I was inarticulate. I hadn't formed any real thoughts on it. And yet immediately I read these people talk about constancy. And that maybe is part of the connection to nostalgia, the nostalgia episode that we did. But I, it's a bit more than that, yeah, isn't it, is. it? I think it is. It's it's something about the need, the the human need, for continuity, for tradition, for those things that do not change, even as the world swirls around us, and it is swirling at hypersonic speed now. I think. That's the other sense that came through it is the constancy that we observed with Queen Elizabeth II is given its meaning because of its contrast to the contemporary world, which we have this shared sense. I think it's, it's like it's spinning out of control. We can't, even if we're excited by it, and not everyone is, but even if we were, we sort of can't keep up with it. And so we kind of needed that. In some ways then, what we're experiencing or seeing here is that the human need for a foil, I suppose, or is that too light a word? Mm. But some, something that embodies the opposite of our political worlds. And so those who want to either criticise the Queen or the royal family as an institution of the monarchy, they will do so on political grounds. That is, this represents a certain kind of politics and a certain history in politics. And those who feel very differently to that, it seems to me what's interesting is they feel that way precisely on the basis that this is not politics, that this is, that she and that the royal family generally exists in a realm that is separate from our politics. And indeed, you know, so she was an apolitical figure. That's the way that it's described. And whether you agree with that assertion that she's political or apolitical will almost, I think, with close to 100% correspondence, determine your attitude. Mm. And that's fascinating, right? Because what I think it's telling us is that we yearn for, that we need as human beings something that is not subject to the vicissitudes and controversies of political life. We need public a political life. 
and something or someone to symbolize it. And that led me to some thoughts that I'd not had at all before this. Not that they sort of made me realize, like change my view on everything or anything like that, but just that I hadn't, hadn't sharpened my focus, I guess, until this moment. And that is that the very benefit of the monarchy, no, the benefit's the wrong word, the very magic of the monarchy, especially in a place like Britain, less so in a place like Australia, although I still think it has something to say here, is that it doesn't embody any of the trappings of democracy. So in other words, the fact that it's undemocratic is the thing that lends it its continuity, that allows it to become a symbol of the nation, say Great Britain or the United Kingdom, such that what's being mourned here is not just the individual person, and a lot of people saying she was a great queen, etc. It's been fascinating to watch amongst people who loved her, particularly in the United Kingdom, that the love for her has really quite rapidly transferred to King Charles. Hmm. Even though everyone, it seemed, or lots of people, assumed that once Elizabeth II died, it would be a disaster for the monarchy because no one much liked Charles. Actually, that's not the way it's playing out, at least not in these very early days and at least not in the United Kingdom. So that says to me that there is something, what's being mourned here is not the death of a person only or even so much as the death of a national, the, sorry, the, the, the embodiment of a nation. And we need to find a figure in one way or another that does that. The United States, for example, does it with its president, but you see the complications yeah, that arise right. therein. Mm. So the president's a fascinating character in the United States, isn't he? Because his inauguration is something like a coronation. Mm. That's right. And then once the inauguration is over, then we go back to hating him. But we call him Mr. President. Mm. But it, there's, there's sort of all these dual elements. And it, it's made me wonder in the sort of republic discussion whether or not the republic, say an Australian republic, being something that is new with questions of how you would appoint a president, all of those sorts of things, is the republic capable of generating something like that? Can it be so distant in a way from politics that it almost permits it being a unified figure, a way of loving the nation that isn't about arguing over the nation? I genuinely don't know. There's something about the history, the kind of magisterium of it. No matter how much you want to talk about its mythology or whatever, there's something about that that I think, I don't know, it's touched it's, or it's revealed the human need for that. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's supra-rational, isn't it, or pre-rational. And so attempts to discuss it rationally or to critique it rationally just always seem to miss something. That's kind of the articulacy, inarticulacy. Yeah. And believe it or not, Willie, I actually think you've expressed that inarticulacy. This is paradox. <laughs> you've expressed, <laughs> you've articulated the inarticulacy, I think, remarkably well. Let me try to make sort of maybe two, I mean, I, I won't even try to say that they're simple points, but I'm, I'm going to do my best anyway. It is interesting, isn't it, that in the very attempt to describe the monarchy or Elizabeth herself as somehow being apolitical, or I think it's probably better to think of her as transpolitical or someone who is who was above politics, but also in her very role provided politics in Britain with its legitimacy. I mean, she quite literally legitimates British politics. She is the ground of British democracy in that sense. I think what that description of an apolitical or a transpolitical figure, what it's really getting at is what you said, which is continuity. That despite the changes despite the flux, but also despite the divisiveness, that there is something beneath it all or behind it all or above it all that provides that necessary capacity for one generation, for one decade to communicate with the next. There's something inherently recognizable as we move through history's flux. But I think in this particular case, it's not just her longevity. And it's not even, I, I really think I need to say, it's not just her gender either. I think the fact that she was kind of a mother to the nation during certain crucial moments and that she came to, that she came to the throne um, already being able 
to boast a kind of commonness, the way that, for instance, uh, she worked as an ambulance driver, uh, the way that she notoriously insisted on fixing her own cars. There was a kind of plainness about that, as strange as it sounds, uh, that I think was, was important. There's a practicality about her, a no-nonsense-ness about her. But then I also think of those moments of really deep affection that were felt when she functioned, and you know, this would be a kind of parallel with some forms of American politics, she functioned as the mourner of the nation in response to the deaths of COVID. I mean, perhaps the abiding image of her time on the throne is going to be that scene where she never seemed smaller, sitting on her own in, what was it, May 2021, mourning the death of her husband, uh, even as, as we know, not too far away one of the now notorious parties that brought down Boris Johnson uh, was, was going on. The stoicism of that and her function as one who was able to mourn as the nation. And then if you just think about her very simple, but I think quite profound moral message to the country, we will meet again. I think there was something about that embodying a hope for the restoration of the common life of a people that was really quite profoundly bound up with her demeanor, with her gender, with her stature, but also, Walid, with the fact that she, if we talk about continuity, she was Britain's link to the post-war period. And that vital post-war period of national solidarity, of the emergence of the NHS, of the, uh, of the willingness to rebuild the nation and to refound the possibility of finding and securing public housing. All of these forms of sacrifice, of stoicism, of solidarity that are so bound up with that first crucial decade following the Second World War, in many respects, she embodied that. So to that extent, the mourning of her is the mourning of a loss of an ideal that we thought maybe we could still keep in touch with, even in the current times of isolation and divisiveness and, say, self-seeking or social fragmentation. But I think there's, there's one other thing, and this is the thing that troubles me. She also emerged as a kind of mythological figure, as someone about whom debate could not be had and divergent opinion can't really be voiced in an appropriate distance from her death. I think one of the concerns that I have, and we've discussed this in various forms elsewhere, is any attempt to try to ground the conditions of our common life outside of our willingness to take one another, our passions, our disagreements, our wounds, our sense of and our ability to articulate our trauma? I, I worry about any attempt to ground a common life on anything outside of the conditions of democracy itself. And by democracy, I, I don't just mean our official democratic institutions, but I mean our very ability to try to disagree, disagree well, and to give full space for one another to articulate the full extent, the full emotional reach of our disagreement. As we've written about previously for someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, who comes out of, okay, a monarchy, but also a fractured and a fundamentally a disposed or dispensed with monarchy, Alexis de Tocqueville, upon uh, observing the fragile, fledgling democracy of the United States, was convinced that nothing could secure it. Nothing could secure this democracy apart from citizens' ability to continue to, to rediscover in the conditions of their common life through cooperation, through disagreement, through the discovery of the grounds of legitimacy within the context of democratic disagreement and contestation. In other words... I just think we're asking for trouble if we look to someone like the queen or we look to an institution like a monarchy as a metaphysical or ontological grounding for our common life, as if that's the thing that's going to hold us together when everything else is falling apart. That necessarily means that other people who cannot find the words to subscribe to that ground of legitimacy are going to find themselves excluded from vital forms of democratic debate uh, or democratic articulation. Sorry, why, why does that follow? The grounds of democracy, the securing of our politics, it seems to me cannot 
be fundamentally, say, ontologically or metaphysically external to democratic life or political expression. Um, the monarchy grounds uh, British society and continuity. Um, George Orwell was not a, I mean, he was an anti-monarchist, but he thought that something like common decency, the ability of people to speak well with one another and to articulate something fundamentally in common was the thing that throughout political disagreement could be that which held the British people together and, if you like, expressed their excellentness over and against. And here he had no time yeah. whatsoever for, for instance, Ireland. Um, what I mean is saying that even for Orwell, something like common decency only extended so far and it was still parochial. It was still the common decency that has a very uh, British quality to it. My difficulty is that any attempt to ground the well-being and the political life of a highly diverse people who are going to see the legacy of the life that we now live in a really conflicted and uneven way, any attempt to ground that common life outside of our ongoing ability to negotiate these differences and to find a way of carrying on nonetheless, any seeking of an anchor that's going to give us stability as the years roll over and as administrations change, my I mean, I think you're right that there's a natural human desire for that. I worry, however, that the very attempt to find something outside of the, the throes of disagreement, outside of political contestation, I really worry that any attempt to find that is necessarily going to lead to some people simply not being able to articulate a place for themselves within that common life unless they already subscribe in advance to that ground. Let me just say one very, very simple... Sorry, to what ground? To that thing that, an that anchors? To that thing which anchors. So, for instance, I've been astounded but not surprised by a number of Christian theologians who have leapt to the celebration of the legacy of the queen as an indication of the importance of a Christian monarch for the stability of British society, and should a Christian monarch no longer be there, there would surely be nothing left to secure British common life. Yeah, but I, I that's think the kind of thing that worries me incredibly deeply. Yeah, but I wonder if you should worry less, <laughs> just because I think the thing that makes her reign successful to those who want to celebrate it is that she's a bit of a blank canvas. It's not to say that she wasn't a leader. She was a leader of sorts, but there was a, a real discipline to mm. the way that she conducted herself in that office mm, and how little she would say. And so the blank canvas aspect of it is what permits people, or permits her to be a unifying figure because she can become whatever it is, that whatever image they want to project onto her, mm. right? So if, if there are... Christian theologians who want to make her a Christian monarch. And I suppose, you know, formally she is. There's no denying that, right? She's the head of the Church of England. And there's also no doubt about her personal faith. Right. Okay. But there are a lot of non-Christians who have a way of relating to her, precisely because she's not at the pulpit. Mm, <laughs> right? mm, true. It's not like the Archbishop of Canterbury. That would be a, a bigger stretch for non-Christians to make. So, I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive about this, but I... I and not so worried about the fact that people might read into her certain characteristics that allow them to say, yes, yeah, this is what I, what I relate to. In some ways, it doesn't matter as long as lots of people have a way of, of relating. And there are, you know, Republicans in the United Kingdom. You know, it's not nowhere near as big a movement as here, but there are Republicans in the United Kingdom. It's not like they cannot find a space to exist within British democracy or British public life. And they certainly find a space to exist in Australia. Very loud. But even then, there's a kind of respect for the Queen and for what she's offered. Now, there might be a bit more of a suspicion of Charles as a result, but that's why it's going to be fascinating to watch that transition occur. Mm. I'm just not sure. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about democracy. I agree with it. I mean, when you say we've written something previously on it, I, I suspect you're talking about the quarterly essay we did together, and that is very much anchored in that. Mm. But these are ideals of democracy that are very rarely realised. Mm, that's right. And we need to be honest enough about to admit that. And republics are tricky. That famous Benjamin Franklin quote, you know, a republic if you can keep it. Mm. Um, there's lots of reasons they may not have been able to keep it in the United States, given the circumstances of its, um, how, how it arose. But nonetheless, there is something kind of fragile about these things. 
And I think the idea that we can assume that democratic politics will get bruising, it will get cantankerous, it will fall short of its de Tocquevillean ideals, that will happen. The idea that there be something there that can hold it together, possibly even by doing very little, Hmm. is important. Once upon a time in Australia, maybe that was the Australian cricket team. I don't know. It's clearly not anymore. And by the way, this is not an argument against the Republic necessarily. I'm just saying that there's something there that's going on that's important that I think this moment reveals Hmm. and that if we are going to walk down a different road to the one that we're currently on, we're going to have to find a way to capture yeah. And, and I don't think it's about exclusion. I think it's about lending coherence to what's increasingly incoherent. Well, Ed, I don't disagree with you at all. And you just said you weren't making an argument against the Republic. I should say that I'm not making an argument for the Republic. My, my, my argument is simply, I truly do believe that seeing the Queen as an apolitical figure probably masks a degree to which she is inherently for some people a political figure. But it also masks to some extent a jaundiced view of politics that I don't think we need to have. If, if you think about Michael Oakeshott's definition of politics as the relentless practice of the care of the common life of a people whom chance or fate have thrown necessarily together, that it means that this kind of binding continuous function the constantly seeking out that which unifies us and gives a degree of continuity from one generation to the next, that ought to be an inherent aspect of any properly conceived notion of politics itself. So to see the queen as reconciling and politics as divisive, that may well be how things have played out. I think we're probably selling politics a bit too short in doing that and misunderstanding the way that legitimacy for politics can only emerge from within its delicate practice and it can't really be necessarily grounded from without. Fair enough. I just think it's a clear eyed description. Nonetheless, we'll ask our guest. Our guest is a famous monarchist, of course, uh, Stephanie Collins. She's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the minefield and for being willing to make your rousing defense of the Queen and the persistence of the Crown. Oh, no, you've given me a hard task. <laughs> Thanks both. It's, um, it's great to be here. I'm not sure if that's exactly what I'm here to do. But, I know um, it's I'll not. I'll try my best. No, no, no. So, so you've heard us, I don't know, argue with each other, go around in circles. It's your call. Where do you want to take us? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm divided on, on this stuff. So I think there's definitely something to the thought, right, that people, particularly in a democracy where you've got division and contestation and disagreement, people need a way to conceptualize themselves as a we, right? So, you know, you kind of mentioned the, the United States case, right? The constitution starts like, we the people, we're a plurality, um, but we are at the same time are one thing. We are the people, but we are, we are a plurality. And in any democracy, you need a way of bringing people together, something that unites people, um, something that people have as a kind of common ground, I think you were just putting it to kind of to bind them together. Whether, of course, a monarch is the right vessel for that, for that we-ness of democracy, I think is, is a much more difficult question. And this goes to the question of whether Queen Elizabeth II was political or not. I mean, of course, there are many Republicans, there are, you know, many people who sort of disagreed with with lots of the Queen's actions or inactions in the case of Indigenous reconciliation in Australia, say. But it, there's also a real sense in which the Queen was apolitical. So you might think, okay, maybe this is the kind of common ground that can, can at least in theory, if not in practice, at least in theory, could unite people together as a we, as, as having some kind of fabric that holds us together as a society. But it's important to recognise, I think, that the very act of holding people together as a, as a we, as a plurality that is at the same time a unit, that very act of holding people together is itself political. That, that has to be acknowledged, at least if we understand politics as a matter of kind of who gets what, when and how, 
right? That's a very broad definition of politics. Then the question of what is it that's going to unite us? What is going to be the basis of our common ground? That's always going to be a political question. And whatever mechanisms unite us and together as a people uh, are going to be political mechanisms, even if they are mechanisms that successfully unite us. So, so all of that is to say the need for constancy and continuity and tradition, uh, I think, is is essential to kind of getting on together politically, trying to build um, build a politics together and viewing that as a project that's teamwork rather than just antagonism all the time. But of course, whatever it is that unites us in that way is itself going to be political. And as Scott said, is always, almost inevitably always going to exclude some people. So as, as I'm not sure I'm here, I'm not sure quite sure I'm going to be able to push the monarchist argument because there's a big question of whether a monarch is the, is the way to go for that. But we, didn't, we don't want to get into the Republican debate too deeply, do we? So. No. no. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I've got an alternative proposal, which I might get to if I pluck up the courage later on. But the, the way you've described that is, is interesting, Stephanie, because you say even that project of, you know, becoming or providing a symbol that around which a we can exist, even that being political and certainly the selection of what that might be is political. That's true to some extent. Well, sorry, in a certain sense, it's obviously true, certainly if you define politics in a particular way. But so would any position you take on that, like, you know, whether it's someone, sorry, or even to say, no, we don't need that symbol or we don't need a, a we to exist mm. necessarily. That's true. Well, that's no less political. In fact, I would say that's radically political because it overturns the kind of longest held intuitions of probably human beings, right, that have always existed in, in a we of some sort and it's political structure that ends up changing, you know, what that we is exactly. Um, I think when we say something's apolitical in this context, we're talking about a sort of everyday usage of the term of politics. What I think is interesting is that's become harder to sustain precisely because we live in an era where everything is politics now, like everything is being politicised. And I understand the reasons for that. I, I understand the arguments that, that want to do that. But what I also understand and, and I, what I don't think is frequently enough acknowledged by people who want to offer those arguments is the, the damage that can do in the form of just creating incommensurability. Mm. Because once everything is politics, then everything is adversarial and contested. Um, oh, see, I disagree with that. I mean, I, I think something can be political but not be contested. It can be the common ground that we, that we hold together in our day-to-day -day lives but that, and that perhaps we only kind of reflect upon or consider in quiet moments that are not day to day. I mean, take a take a much more mundane example than the monarchy, right? Take yep. these the kind of small rituals and habits that we use to show respect for one another in day to day life. So take things even like, that is hugely contested now, Stephanie. It, I know. It, well, they are and they aren't. So I'm thinking of things like wearing black at funerals, right? Like. We could have worn white at funerals. That could have been the norm. The norm that we have is that we wear black at funerals. That's the way to show respect. I don't know. May, maybe there are huge lobbies against that particular norm. Waving thank you at someone when they let you in in traffic, right? And then, you know, someone lets you into a queue in, in your car. Waving thank you at someone. People get very upset when people don't wave thank you, right? Right. Um, Would you say those things are political? These sorts of things. Well, this is exactly the point. I think they are. They are political in the sense that. They unite us together in a society. They are ways of showing respect for one another. And they unite us together into a we, and in that sense, they are political. But they're not politicised in the sense that day-to-day, -day, at least for those particular examples and examples like them, uh, people don't kind of contest them. I, I think, yeah, they're political but not politicised, if we can put it that way. So you're saying anything that, any convention that exists in society becomes necessarily political? Yeah, I mean, not, maybe not, well, it depends what you mean by convention. Yeah, the little conventions and norms and rituals that we have for acknowledging one another's humanity, I think, are ways of bringing us together and coming together with others is political. I mean, we can debate about the meaning of what, you know, I don't want to get too bound up in the terminology of how we should use this particular word, political, but there seems to be something about 
showing respect for people, um, acknowledging others' humanity that has a political function, has a political purpose, does, it does something politically. But at the same time, it, it doesn't have to be a side of, of antagonism and contestation. Okay, yeah, but you know what's interesting mm-hmm. about that is I find anyway, increasingly, even those sort of norms of civility are being politicised and interpreted as some kind of power structure. And it would just take somebody to offer the argument or do the empirical analysis or whatever that would show that, for example, in traffic situations like the ones you've described, women wave thank you more than men do. or Or people of colour wave thank you more than white people do. And so actually this is some kind of power structure. It's a small but real instantiation of an inequality or an oppression or something. And that therefore, because we can't expect men or white people or whoever to commence this um, civility, because they won't do it, we should withdraw it. Obviously, I'm playing with a really little example that you've provided, but would you say to me that that sort of analysis is unimaginable to you? Oh, it's absolutely imaginable. No, 100% it's imaginable. But I think, put it this way, we can... It's sort of a, it's a ship of Theseus situation. So you kind of you're fixing your boat while you're at sea, right? We've got these yeah. rituals and norms. The monarchy wearing black at funerals, waving thank you. These these we're we're at sea and we've got these norms and we're operating in society with them. And we can debate about particular ones, the monarchy or wearing black or waving thank you. We can debate those ones, but my suspicion is well, and I'm not the only one who thinks. I think many philosophers sort of think this that in order to debate any one of those, you're going to sort of have to hold the rest of it fixed just for the purpose of that debate. So I can for sure imagine, you know, the kind of debate that you're describing arising. But then in the context of that debate, we would have to hold other norms fixed about how we debate about the norms of waving thank you in traffic, right? We would have to hold fixed that gender equality matters or that racial equality matters. And, you know, we sort of hold that fixed as our as our common ground as our assumption is what holds us together so that we can then have a debate about the norms of waving to people in traffic. So you can only fix certain parts of the ship. You can't fix the whole ship at one moment because we're at sea on it, if, if, you see, if I can use that metaphor. Sure, so, but I guess uh, I think what yeah. I'm saying is that the totalisation of politics demands the fixing of the whole ship at once. And that's when everything becomes political and therefore everything becomes contested. And maybe, to extend your analogy, the overall result of that is that you can't fix the boat and the boat just sinks. Now, I don't know. I'm playing with the metaphor, but um, maybe that's what happens. And maybe the point of something like the monarchy or whatever symbol it is you want to put there and the idea of it existing in an apolitical way is it's constantly reminding you, hey, there's a ship. Yeah, I think, oh, I mean... I would worry about fixing the whole ship at once for the reasons that you exactly just outlined. Um, and this is why, I, you know, Scott maybe was tempted to introduce me as a monarchist. I have these slightly, call them conservative or call them just um, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater kinds of inclinations um, in these kinds of contexts. So I, I would worry about a movement that wanted to throw out the whole ship at once. I guess that would be anarchism or something uh, would be that kind of movement. Yeah, so... Uh, I can I can see that maybe that's maybe that's the way politics is going, and I do worry about that. And I would think it's important to yeah hold these pieces of agreement in the background while you're disagreeing on any one piece of it. And you mentioned mm. sort of the monarchy as the potential thing that we hold fixed while we disagree about the rest. But you know for the reasons that Republicans give, I think the monarchy can only be part of the ship, right? And it's got to be part of the ship that we can debate about while standing on other parts of the ship. <laughs> To, to stretch the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the discussion. I mean, a lot of people are going to feel that we're sort of getting way, 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 way down into the hull of the ship rather than having our <laughs> eyes set on, on the horizon. That's where the minefield is, Scott. That's it is. just where it is. But I love it because, I mean, there is something, what is being very clearly articulated, I think, is the importance of identifying that which is in common and then finding some way of making that we both inclusive but also internally vibrant and vital. So I just wonder if what it is we're trying to do or part of the discontent that's being expressed is that there is something either necessarily or in the way that it's currently practiced all too self-serving or partisanly interested about the way that politics works. And we don't hence have those vital moments where we can 
push politics beyond its current limits and try to take in something more generously, more wholeheartedly. So we think, for instance, at those moments of national mourning, we talk about the leaders coming together in moments that are above politics. I mean, that has always terrified me. It seems to me that even though politics isn't everything, to say that moments of real nobility and generosity and emotional tenderness and human recognition are above politics, I think is sending exactly the wrong message. But here, Do you here, know what they're saying, Scott? They're saying it's above contestation, as if politics is simply contestation or partisan advantage. I think that's probably a better hill to die on. Let me just use this, and I'll turn it over to the two of you to see if it makes any sense at all. There were two moments in this later decade of the Queen's reign that I've been thinking about quite a lot. One was in 2011 when she visited the Republic of Ireland. I mean, it was in every respect, symbolically, politically, historically, a remarkable moment. Her use of the Irish language during a gathering at Dublin Castle, the fact that she laid a wreath to those who had previously fought against the British crown. These are moments that are fraught with historical significance. And once she did them, once she took certain things which were out of bounds politically and made them licit, made them moral in the deepest sense, made them something that could be countenanced, it's impossible for British politics as a whole to simply go against that. So there's something at that very moment where she's pushing the bounds of what was politically licit, what was politically feasible. So I think that's that's a moment where Sorry, something... Sorry, can I just get you to expand on that? What, what is it that she did there that democratic politics in Britain would have rejected? She refused historical grudges and resentments. She refused the previous outlawing of the Gaelic language. She made a gesture previous, of... Previous. But it, I mean, it seems to me what she's really doing there is just expressing what British politics had evolved to anyway. But British politics wasn't quite there yet. And for a prime minister, for instance, to do something like that unilaterally would have been not quite right, would have been insensitive to the memories of those whose lives have been lost to dot, dot, dot. So I think there's, a, there's something there which is interesting. That was in 2011. Then in 2012, you got her Diamond Jubilee, the same year as there the London Olympics. The nation is saturated with imperial nostalgia from Queen Elizabeth through to James Bond. And on one level, you have the, this kind of high point of national unity. But then it's only a couple of years and you've got the Scottish independence referendum. Then it's only a year or two and you've got the Brexit referendum. It's only a short while after that that you have the language surrounding the Brexit debate that characterizes Britain as effectively having been colonized by the EU. So it seems to me that you've, you've got this moment where the very blank canvas that you were talking about, Willie, it's something that was that is beyond politics that can also allow for people to kind of project or express their hopes for the future, at certain crucial moments, it can also be used to simply give further sucker to an existing, fragile, disappearing political sentiment that is only being held up by its own self-delusion. So it just seems to me that there's something there in the way that we talk about politics suffocating hopes for the future versus politics uh, being stretched by kind of supra or trans political forces like the monarchy. There's something there about what we expect, what we hope, what we want from politics. And I just don't see it reliably being achieved outside of politics itself. I mean, I think those acts that you described of the Queen are obviously political acts, right? particularly the Irish, the Irish case. And that is a case of her stretching the realm of what's possible in a way being non-conservative, right? And you mentioned Oakshot earlier, you know, he likes the actual over the possible mm. and, and the real over the unreal. And so, you know, she's taking us into this, this realm of the possible, the realm of the unreal. But it's also true that the Queen isn't, the Queen obviously isn't the only one who can do that. I mean, we talked about the US case a couple of times, think about Rosa Parks sitting in the front of the bus or what have you, right? Um, these cases of people being kind of norm entrepreneurs, to go back to the kind of social norm stuff that I was talking about earlier. 
the, the, the monarch isn't the only one who can stretch us in those ways or show us those new possibilities. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know where that, where that leaves us in terms of thinking about the role of the monarchy and bringing us together or in or the role of the monarchy and the political, but I think it does show the, the monarchy isn't, isn't special in, in, in that regard. I think that's right. And, and, and I would just say that in your example of Rosa Parks, this just underscores to me why the only continuity that we can seek really is a capital W we, as long as, and this is why the moment that Australia is in at the moment, I think is so fraught, there really can be no Australian we, unless those precisely those First Nations who have been as historically politically excluded from that we are given, are given full voice within it, which is why the example of the refusal of silence during the Indigenous round of the AFLW. I mean, that, I don't know, there's, there's something portentous there. There's something important that I, I think kind of needs to be taken seriously. It, it registers where the continuity, where the consistency that ought to undergird our common life needs to be found. I, I, I agree with both of you that it can't simply be contestation. It can't simply be disagreement and radical reform. But I think this very search for something outside of the conditions of our common life and the traumas and the bruises and the wounds of our history, seeking something outside of that is just asking for the kind of 2012 delusion that I was just making reference to with global Britain and the Diamond Jubilee. But I, I don't know. I'm just not sure these examples are quite hitting the mark. Like I think, I think what Queen Elizabeth did in respect of Ireland, what you've described there, it's actually a million miles away from what Rosa Parks did because she was shaking up a structure that was crushingly present. Mm. She was doing something that was quietly and in an extremely dignified way massively disruptive to a particular oppressive structure. You could not describe in that way what the Queen did with respect to Ireland. No, you, just, of course not. you just couldn't. Right? Well, so, yeah. Go on. I was just going to say, I mean, similar in the sense of showing us what's possible, right? Taking yeah. us beyond the conservatives. That's right. Yes. Sure. Except that, that I would argue that yeah. it was kind of, in its way, it was conservative because it was really just giving uh, magisterial expression to something that had already evolved, right? There, there was, I don't know if you want to call it organic or inorganic, but there was an evolution in the way that British politics and the British consciousness had gotten to a particular point with respect to Ireland. And so by the time the Queen does that, she's not doing something radical. You couldn't describe it in that way. There's a certain continuity to what, what she's doing even in that case. But where it is something that is really live, so like Brexit, she's studiously silent, which is why you ended up with all these highly speculative tittle-tattle stories mm, and, true. you know, the press about what did she really think about Brexit and so on. And I'm curious. I, you know, I spoke to a former Prime Minister once who'd met the Queen, obviously, a few times, and I was, what does she think about Brexit? Because I want to know, <laughs> right? So we all want to know, but none of us knows. And yeah, I remember that, sorry, speculation about her hat. Remember she wore that hat that looked yes, a bit like right. a European flag? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the perfect example of the blank canvas, right? Remainers, I'm sure, look at the Queen and go, oh, there's no doubt it should be Remain. And Brexiteers do exactly the same thing. And that was the genius of it, right? That's, that's the thing that allowed the we to exist. Now, Scott, I think you're, you're definitely right in the Australian case that the Indigenous aspect of this is fundamental. Like, it, that's why reconciliation is an important project, right? Because without that, the we is a very difficult thing to constitute. And that may raise questions for the monarchy, particularly in an Australian context that don't necessarily exist in the British context in quite the same way. But nonetheless, all I'm saying is, if there is to be something else, it has to be something that taps into those magical elements that the monarchy prov has provided, at least in the UK, and clearly for a lot of Australians as well, even if the number of Australians that would say that is diminishing. And that's not an easy thing to realise. Mm, it's true. Yeah. I have a... Yeah, we... A, Sorry, go on. Uh, I was going to introduce the distinction between uh, civic nationalism and cultural nationalism, which I feel like is sort of what mm. we're, what's underlying a lot of this discussion, right? We, we sort of, seems like the conversation's got to the point where we agree, it's like civic nationalism being bound together as a we is important, but it can't be premised on any particular, say, religion or particular kind of partisan traditions as the cultural nationalists would want. And then, and then it's also true, we've kind of suggested that we need to acknowledge both the power of history and the power of structure in determining what it is that our unifiers can do. So the thought that what the Queen did in Ireland was determined by the structures that already existed and that surrounded her, while at the same time also acknowledging that 
humans are agents, not just the people that rule us, but all the rest of us, we're all agents too. So a structure has a role to play, but agency also comes into it. And in, in the Australian context, there's the Indigenous element, which is very important. And all of this leads me to think that someone like Ash Barty should be the Queen of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Binds us together civically, you know, kind of culturally divisive. It's sport. You mentioned the cricket team earlier. Both pushes the envelope and, you know, has the potential to kind of symbolise or acknowledge the, the, the past. I don't know. That's that's my wacky proposal. Wow. Well, there is a respect in which... Um, Sports people have been that in Australia. Mm, it's true. And Ash Barty, I know you've picked as a very particular example, but yeah, um, we um, we have to go. It's just a shame because that was there was a lot to play with there, Stephanie. That would have been good fun. Alas, we'll have to leave it for another time. Um, I will let you know that our producer Sinead, who of course is Irish and has been listening very keenly throughout this whole conversation for references to Ireland, I think is very excited about Queen Ash the First. So you've got one person on board at the very least, Stephanie. Oh, good. Well, I thought I'd say something, Becky, because I wanted to hear your I wanted to hear what your outrageous proposal was going to be. Uh, uh, like, we don't okay, have time. I'll say it, but it's, it's problem is it's very hard to say quickly. I was just thinking of oh, something. Yeah that's grounded in history, that's got natural resources of ceremony to draw on, that is undemocratic. I specifically want it to be undemocratic as a head of state for reasons I've kind of explained and I could explain it more length but don't have time. And so I came up with this idea. It just hit me like a bolt out of the blue at night the other night. And I'm sure it's a terrible idea, but for right now I think it's a good one. What if instead of a queen or a president we had an Australian elder Wow. And that elder was Indigenous and had to be Indigenous and for that reason was undemocratic, mm. but is anchored in a history, a culture that is replete with ceremony, but also has, is inflected with a kind of informality that I think expresses Australianness, that would clearly represent something deep of Australia on the world stage. There are questions about how apolitical a figure like that could be, and, and I would say that have to be, but then I understand that gets you into a whole other argument. I acknowledge that. And instead of calling Her Majesty or Queen or King or whatever, they were called Uncle or Auntie. Mm. I just think that would be. Wow. And, That's and great. It, was, I... it was for life. So when they die, you have the mourning period. There are rituals of mourning that are probably already established. I can hear all the arguments against it, I'm sure, but I feel like this is the first good idea I've ever had. And <laughs> I... Yeah, no, go on, go on. Sorry, I keep interrupting. No, no, I'm pretty much done because the more flesh I put on this, the easier it'll be to critique. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I got to say, I'm so excited because I actually had a similar thought the other day, well, the same thought the other day. But then I instantly thought, but there are like hundreds of Indigenous nations. I mean, you know, how are we going to pick the process of picking which nation gets to determine the elder or which nation the elder is from? That whole process would become politicised. Because it it couldn't be hereditary. It couldn't be hereditary, yeah. No, no, I don't think it could yeah, be, it and, really and it's the disadvantage we have compared to, say, New Zealand, where there are Maori kings and queens that are sort of, there is a more organic process for that. I understand all yeah. that. Um, uh, yeah, but no, I love it. Mm, me yeah, too. Anyway. Sign me up. All right. The three of us, the political movement begins, sorry, the apolitical movement <laughs> begins here. Oh, my God. We better go before we disappear in a puff of our own contradictions. Stephanie, thank you so much. It's been great fun. Thank you both so much. It was a great chat. Thanks very much. Stephanie Collins, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.